Good morning. My name is Seth. I'll be your guest preacher for today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open them to Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23, to chapter 4, verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23, to chapter 4, verse 1. And if you are in service with us, if you could stand with us as we read God's Word together. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23, to chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord as written by Moses. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him for he shall go over at the head of this people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Por. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father in heaven, you are good to us. You give to us your word that breathes life into us, reminds us of all that you have shown to us in Jesus, who is so precious. And so, Father, just be with us in this moment. May your spirit just open up our eyes and our hearts to to see who you are. See, Lord, how wretched and how sinful we are and how you have crossed that gap with the giving of your son. So just be with us in this moment. May your word just bear fruit in our hearts. Father in heaven, we just give you thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, my name is Seth. It is a pleasure to come and preach the word with you guys, both in person and virtually for those of us joining online. Um, If you're like most people, including me, you've probably made some New Year's resolutions. And if you're like most people, by now in your journey, you've probably started to fail. Such is the human condition. Um, I told myself this coming year that I would just relegate myself to a diet of grilled chicken breast and broccoli just to cut back, you know, and I didn't realize how much weight I gained until I put on a suit and I was like, oh, this suit is tighter than normal. This belt buckle, I have to use one less notch over. But if you follow me or my wife on Instagram, you know that chicken and broccoli was not the diet of choice for the last few months. You know that I've just enjoyed myself with other things, adding heavy cream and lots of sugar and lots of carbs into my diet. And as such, I too have failed my New Year's resolution. And I come saying all these these things because there's a consequence to these failures. Maybe not right now, because right now I wear sweats 24-7 as a good postmodern, and those sweats expand back and forth. But I know that once I go back into the office and I put on jeans, those jeans will be extra tight. That belt buckle will be extra tight. And, and I know that once I sit down for a meeting, 
my jeans will rip. Such is the cost of life. Such is the consequences that we face. Failure is imminent. We fail in our endeavors and our goals, and we will fail spiritually. We will fall into sin. Now, as good Christians, hopefully you know that Jesus has paid for your sins. But still, there are consequences. And, and in American Christianity, as sort of the way that we have understood the gospel, we often conflate the grace that God shows to us in which he pays for the penalty of our sins with that of also being clear of consequences. But friends, this is not grace. This is a rejection of grace because it ultimately rejects repentance. And today's passage is to get us to wrestle with those ideas. And I say that because especially in sort of American Christianity, sort of evangelicalism as a whole, what you see more than more is this idea of Christian ideology becoming the currency of the Christian church, which is remarkably different than what you would have seen in the early church. Because the early church, though it was known for its theology, was much more known for its ethics and its virtue. But Christianity in the modern day, we're much more known for the things that we believe and not for the things that we do. And what often happens is that though we preach repentance, what we often tell people is that you need to repent and not often realize that repentance needs to begin with ourselves. I say all those things because when you come into the story that we have sort of read, it really wrestles with those ideas of grace, of mercy, of justice, of consequences, and of sin, ultimately. If you know the story of Exodus, you may remember through the Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments, or if you're young, you've seen none of these movies. Um, but the story of Exodus is the story of the nation of Israel who had been in captivity to the Egyptians and God would raise up Moses to go and free the Israelites from slavery to bring them back to the promised land, God's home for them. Now that's the story of Exodus. And so they leave, many miracles happen, one of them being the parting of the Red Sea, other stories being how God would provide manna and quail from heaven. And miracle after miracle, the Israelites would see all these things. And you know what happened? They doubted God time and time again. A journey that should have taken a month from Egypt to the promised land would end up taking 40 years. And because they doubted, God would allow that generation of Israelites to die only to allow their children to eventually enter in. And so when we enter into this passage, they're on the verge of entering the promised land after 40 years. Moses is ready to take them in. In fact, he's the most pumped. He knows how legitimate God is. He knows what God has been doing, what God has been promising. He knows just how good those promises are. And he's looking so forward to it. But then God tells Moses this, go to the top of the mountain and look to the promised land. Behold, you shall not enter. So the question first is why, is, why does this happen? What is going on here? Why doesn't God just allow the Israelites, that first generation, and Moses to enter? Now, if you look at Deuteronomy from the beginning, from chapter 1, verse 1, to where we are in chapter 4, it's, it's, a, it's a culmination of Moses' first speech to the Israelites before they enter the promised land. And if you look at these first few chapters, what he does is that he recounts, basically, how the Israelites disobeyed God, but God would still give them victory in the wilderness. 
And this speech that Moses gives ultimately ends with Moses himself reminding the Israelites how he himself is forbidden from entering the promised land. At the end of chapter 1, Moses recounts how the Israelites are frightened of what God calls them to do. That God calls them to enter into the land, to conquer it, promising them that the same God who brought them out of Egypt, the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who provides for them daily, day in and day out, that same God would be with them. But these Israelites, they're afraid and they're distraught. They don't believe Moses and the promises of God. And so what does God do? He curses them. And he swears that this generation of Israelites would never enter the promised land. Now the Israelites, they hear this and, they, and then they say this, We have sinned against God. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commands us. And it's to this that we see that the Israelites seem ready to trust in God once again. But yet, God commands them specifically to not go, lest they will be defeated. And so what do they do? Do they listen to God? No. They don't listen to God. Even though God has said that you will be defeated if you go into battle, they're stubborn. They go into battle and they are defeated. Moses writes this, You returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. And I think what you see illustrated here with the Israelites and eventually with Moses is this issue of just what does repentance look like? And these Israelites, what they're showing here is not true sorrow and repentance. It's rather fear of the consequences of not trusting and seeking change because of it. They don't get it. They don't get that they don't believe in God's word because it shouldn't be the fear of the consequences that ought to lead them down this path. The consequence should make them realize, if anything, just the sin in their hearts and how that's a deeper issue. And that's what happens with Moses. See, Moses is the same way. He embodies for all of us the failure of the Israelites as seen in an individual. Because just as the Israelites would not truly know how to repent, so also Moses is the same way. In one of the instances that Moses references here in Deuteronomy, he's really looking back to Numbers 20. And what happens in Numbers 20 is that while the Israelites are on this last leg of their journey in the wilderness, they run out of water. And now this is something that's happened before time and time again. They've run out of water before. It's not, it's really not that big of a deal, right? There's that go, oh, we have no water. What do we do? And God goes, well, I'll provide that. Don't worry. I'm here. And Moses, he, he knows what to do. He goes and he talks to God and he asks God, God, what should we do this time? There's a, there's an aura here of just, it's, a, it's familiar to Moses. It's not something new. He's not too worried. But God, this time he tells Moses, Moses, I want you to go and talk to this rock. And when you talk to the rock, water will come out. It's a little weird, but you know, sometimes God asks people to do weird things and Moses goes. But this time, instead of talking to the rock, he strikes the rock. Now some of us go, that's not that big of a deal. But scholars would note this, that when God asks Moses to speak to the rock, God is wanting Moses to trust in him so that the Israelites might trust in God again. But Moses, it's not just the striking of the rock. As he strikes the rock, he yells to the Israelites, listen, you rebels. And what you see is that 
he's really sick of his people. He's really sick of his people not trusting him, not trusting God. And so he just strikes the rock and asks, must we bring water out of this rock? Implying that he is the one doing the miracle, not so much God. And so God's not happy because Moses didn't do what God asked him to do. And instead, Moses here is being prideful. Moses sins against God. And because of that sin, there's a consequence. And that consequence would be what we read here, that Moses, you shall not enter into the land. And so there's a flow that we want to hear, we want to see in this passage, right? There's a flow that we want to sort of wrestle through as I sort of just gave you some background context. First is this, that there's, a, there's an issue of what is Moses' desire? And that seems like a basic question, but that's something that we need to wrestle with. What is he desiring? What's the consequence of his own sin? And how does Moses respond to that in the grace that he receives? So first, his desire. When we come into the passage specifically, Moses has an agenda in mind before God. And, he, and if you read verse 24, you really have to read it. Maybe I'm just a cynic, but you have to read it with just like, what is, what is he really trying to say here, right? Verse 24 says this, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. Moses is puckering up to God. He's really trying to sort of get on God's good side. Right? I don't know if you ever tried to do that. I don't know if you ever tried to go to God and say, God, you know, you're so great. Maybe you do that to your spouse. You're so great. I just, I love you so much. And then, and then what do you do? You have that thing that you want to ask them. God, you're so awesome. Why don't you let me into that promised land? You know, you're so gracious. Why don't you just be gracious to me? Context suggests that Moses has probably gone before God a few times about this. That after his sin, God had told him that, Moses, you're not going to enter into the promise and you sinned against me. And Moses thinks that he can persuade God and have God show him grace and mercy. After all, isn't that what God is about? Isn't God all about showing grace and mercy? And so on one form, it seems like Moses comes seeking on one level a form of grace and mercy from the Lord. But what is it that Moses so desires? It's not that he desires grace and mercy from God. No, that's a means. What he desires is to go into the promised land. He thinks this is what he needs. He thinks what he needs is grace and mercy so they can go into the, into the promised land. But that's what he wants. What does God desire? Now, I'm not God, but I can make a few conjectures from reading the passage and just reading the Bible. Contrary to legalism, God does not desire to make Moses miserable because Moses sinned, right? God is not out there to make us miserable, right? He's not out there to make us miserable living in this world around us. Nor does God desire to not be gracious and merciful. In fact, I think God wants Moses to be blessed, Right. I really like to say that he wants, he wants to bless him. He wants to bless him and he wants him to experience grace and mercy for a specific purpose. And so how does he go about this? God knows what Moses wants and God knows that what he actually needs is something far better, initially tough to swallow, 
but much more beautiful to ultimately behold. You know, in the past few years, the past few decades, actually, there's been a rising awareness and courage of victims who faced abuse and hurt and violence, and now they confront those who hurt them. And this happens both in the world around us, but also within the midst of the churches. And sometimes, especially within the context of the church, you hear the story of an older individual who hurts or abuses a younger person or something along those lines. And especially within the church, they'll say things like, well, you should forgive the abuser. Doesn't Jesus say to forgive them? After all, isn't Jesus about grace and forgiveness? Doesn't he tell us to forgive our enemies? And we hear that and we go, well, I mean, yeah, he he does. But is that the point here? Is grace and mercy the end? Is that the goal? See, forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences or even justice. Sometimes true forgiveness can only occur when you realize the true extent of your actions bleeding into the consequences of your life. Even within the Bible, you see this, right? If you know the story of King David, King David is a man after God's own heart who loves God, yet even he sins, right? He takes another man's wife as his, and then he kills that other man. And so after some encounters with the prophet and after his own encounters with God, eventually David repents. God forgives David. But still what happens? The child that is born to David because of his actions, because of his sin, is ultimately struck down. Now God will forgive, but that doesn't mean God will still not bring about his justice or there will not be consequences. And in his doing so, many times these consequences, these acts of justice on this side of eternity can open eyes to see just the true depth of sin that has been done. And so the question is, what is Moses' consequence? God says to Moses, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. If I were to paraphrase, Moses, you don't get it, do you? You don't get why I'm not letting you in. You don't fully grasp the severity of all this. Go up to the top of Pisgah, which is a mountain, and lift your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward, and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this this Jordan. God is saying, look, don't touch. Why? Why? Because you're seeing everything that I won't give you. Not so that you'll be bitter, but why? But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. That as you see this land, this beautiful land that I was going to give to you and your people, you won't receive it, but your people will. And they won't have you anymore. You can't lead them anymore. You've disqualified yourself. But still, you must ensure that they will succeed and thrive. Moses needs to come to terms with the depth of his sin, ultimately. He has only come to terms with his sin in regards to the threat of losing all that he has. But what he hasn't realized is how far his sin has placed him, not just from the promised land, but from God himself. 
See, Moses is more concerned with losing the promised land than with losing God. And so his pleas for grace and mercy are self-serving at the end of the day. Your sin will catch up to you and it will kill you. Think about the worst sin that you've ever done. Think about the most evil thought that you've ever had or the most terrible thing you've ever done to someone. And then think, how did you get to that moment in your life? Chances are you never just fall into deep sin overnight. No one wakes up thinking, I'm just going to kill that person or cheat on my spouse or anything like that. Sin is at the root of our hearts, but it develops into something more and more destructive if we never go about killing it and how quickly we fall into sin. You look at Moses and his sin. This is his 40th year. He's, he's used to leading his people and trusting God by now. But what you see here is what? That in his heart, building up slowly over time, he's grown bitter and resentful. That as he sees his people fail over and over again, as he leads his people in circles over and over again, trying to get to this promised land, he's just sick of it all. And so when he disobeys God, it's the result of years of bitterness. God wanted him to do something he had commanded before, but Moses disobeyed. And in that one moment, his ministry falls apart. He's not going to make it into the promised land. Can you imagine the gospel and the rumors? Did you hear? Moses ain't going to make it. Yeah. He disobeyed God and so God cut him off. Moses is going to stay behind while we go ahead. What's going on? Your sin may start small, but eventually, as all sin does, it will get bigger and bigger and bigger. And before you know it, it will have consumed you and turned you inside out. And you see this in so many areas. People who lie, cheat, or steal, it just starts with something small. It starts with that slight hesitation before it pierces into their integrity. It starts with just thinking, I can go a little bit further, pushing that boundary just a little bit more. And sin, so slowly, it snowballs from something so small to something so vicious. It happens to everyone. Young people, old people, sons, daughters, fathers, mothers, pastors. So what do we do? What can we do? Sometimes our initial response is to be like Moses, to think, well, God's going to show me grace. He's going to show me mercy. He'll put this away. But friends, that's not repentance. That's not even seeking mercy or grace. That's just seeking a way out. So what does God do? Is it possible that the best thing God could have done to Moses is to not let him in, but precisely keep him out? That sometimes the sin that you did, the sin that you are doing, the sin that you will do needs to hurt you and hurt people in your life for you to recognize just how much God actually loves you. That you can never understand what God has done in loving you by sending His Son until you realize just how much sin has taken a control of your life and how deadly it is. If sin isn't a big deal, then it's not a big deal that Jesus died for your sin. But sometimes you can't see that sin until you see the consequences of that sin. Not just on a shallow level where you see it just take the things that you care about in your life 
away, but on a deeper level where you see that sin has infected your heart, it has changed your way of thinking, and it has drawn you away from God. And then you realize that my sin is not just bad, it is deadly. It doesn't just hurt me. It doesn't just hurt the people around me. It hurts God. That sin has to strike you with its venom for you to realize that you don't just need a band-aid or an ointment. You need an antidote. You need a cure. That sin has to strike you. And God has to strike Moses in such a way that Moses sees how deadly his sin is. That he has to experience the venom of this sin in his life. He needs to see it infect his body and be at the point of his deathbed to see how deadly it is. Some of you will one day have to face the consequences of your sin. That is the truth. That you may have hurt someone, you may have lied to someone, you may have hurt yourself. But one day or even now, you will have to face that in your life. It will be hurt. It will be painful. But what we do not want is for you to shallowly say, Oh, I just need grace and mercy so that I can feel better. What you need is a cure and an antidote. What does Moses get to experience then? We would think he experiences exile and death. What he gets to experience is true costly grace. Moses goes back to his people and says what we read in chapter 4 verse 1. It's a strange transition. Because if you really, we were so used to sort of these divisions of the Bible. But if you really think about it, Chapter 3 goes straight into chapter 4. That after God says all these things, what is Moses' response? His response is to go back to his people and say, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Our ESV Bibles, they, they have this heading, Moses commands obedience. But I would also say that Moses is finally becoming obedient. He finally gets it. His consequence has become real. He knows that he's not going to get in to the promised land. But now he can experience grace for the, of, for the sake of knowing God more. From our call to worship this morning from Psalm 130, it said this, With you there is forgiveness. Right? And as, as people, not even as Christians, but as people, we love that idea. Right? Oh, there is forgiveness. But the psalmist doesn't just say that. The psalmist says this, it says this, With you there is forgiveness that, for the purpose of, for the sake of, you may be feared. See, for us, we think that forgiveness is the goal, that grace is the end, that that's the things that we want. But see, grace and forgiveness, they lead us somewhere. See, Moses wanted God's forgiveness so that he can enter the promised land. God wants to show forgiveness so that Moses may enter his presence. That the most gracious thing God can do is not let him into the promised land, but keep him out so that he can see the true depth of his sin, so that he can actually experience forgiveness and grace. That is the cost of grace. 
Is that something that you want? Most of us want forgiveness, but very few of us want forgiveness for the sake of knowing God. And his experience of grace thus compels him to what? To go to a people who have angered him, who he is bitter at, who he is resentful at, and he commands them to be obedient, unlike him. To not cheapen grace and mercy, but because of grace, to kill sin that is in your life so that you may be with God. You know, if you read through the book of Deuteronomy, it's very easy to read through Deuteronomy and just come away with a legalistic sense of, this is just the book of commands. Right? Oh, this is, this, is the, this is just fundamentalism. Like, oh, like, these are things that, that God is commanding us to do. And yet I would, I would urge you to think, think about Moses. Because Moses writes this book as he's approaching his death. Moses writes this book as he's thinking through the fact that he's not going to be able to go into the promised land. And he writes this book in such a way where he's trying to remind his people that you're not doing these things that God asks you to do so that you can be loved by God and so that you can enjoy these things. You're doing these things that God asks you to do because God has loved you. He is in a covenant with you. He's in a, in a relationship with you. He wants to love you so that you can love him and know him and fear him. And that's why he he wants obedience. And on, on one hand, and on the other hand, there's this sense for Moses, I failed to uphold what God had asked. And so I am assigned to you, my people, of what will happen when you disobey. Moses is assigned. He's going to be the last one to perish of his generation. All of Exodus, you think Moses is going to make it in, that he's obedient to God. He prays for his people. He's doing everything right. And then he messes up. And then you think, well, he did so much good. Surely God will overlook this. But he doesn't. Moses, you're not going to enter in. And so what is Moses' response? He doesn't go back to his Israelites and he's not bitter at them. And he doesn't go like, oh, away with you. I'm done with you. No, he goes back to his people and he teaches them to do good and to love God and to know that God is with them. Moses here is in a posture of repentance. He's in a posture of realizing his great sin. And he's urging his Israelites to not live like him. Some people go, where's the grace? Where's the mercy? This sounds like punishment. It is punishment. But the mercy is this, that God has allowed Moses to see how wretched his sin is. God has allowed Moses' eye to the sin that was deep in his heart. And the grace that Moses gets to experience is that now he can tell his fellow people of how deadly sin can be, how deadly sin is, of how it would rip him away from the promises of God. How do we know Moses is genuine? Because he continues on in writing Deuteronomy, telling his people to never forget what God has done. A lonely death for Moses is still far better than not dealing with his sin because God is with him in his death. And that will lead to something greater. There's a true cost to all of this. Moses' sin, Israel's sin, your sin. And it's ultimately paid with the death of God's son, Jesus, 
who was slain for each and every single one of you and the sins that you commit. Do you know how easy it would be for God to look at your sin and go, how dare you keep sinning? You shame what my son has done for you. No, he doesn't do that. He's calling for you to repent. And when you don't, he will allow for a moment in your life for that sin to destroy you. Not only so that you can suffer the consequences and face justice, but so that you can come out of that knowing just how deadly sin is. And so that you can be a testament to that. True grace is the overnight transformation in which you can say, God has healed me, hallelujah. True grace will be the day-to-day call for you to see how deadly that sin is, how it wrecked your life, and how it continues to do so. And how you feel those reverberations from years on end. But God still calls you back to him to look upon his son on the cross and know that the weight of sin that you have, you no longer need to carry alone. Jesus bears it. And so kill that sin and sin no more. You know, in our call to worship earlier, it says this, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. The world would read this passage and go, well, Moses, he waits for his death. But we as believers, we know that Moses waits for the Lord and in his word, he hopes. And that he tells us, oh, church, listen to the statutes and the rules that I teach and do them that you may live. There is one who listened perfectly and obeyed in all his strength. And that one died so that you can sin. That one died not so that you can sin safely while grace abounds, but so that in him you may kill your sin and come face to face with the one who loves you the most. Our confession of sin today had this, O wretched man that I am, of all hypocrites, grant that I may not be a gospel hypocrite who sins more safely because grace abounds, who tells his lust that Christ's blood cleanses them, who reasons that God cannot cast them into hell for he is saved, who loves gospel, preaching churches, Christians, but lives unholy. Give me a broken heart that yet carries home the water of grace. May you turn your broken eyes upon a gracious Jesus who may let you tarry for a moment in the death of your sin, but who will make you arise from the ashes of that so that you may be in the presence of God. Let's pray.